Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly web scene for the Global Church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, I Saw the Lord, and it's based upon the lectionary readings for February 6th, 2022, the fifth Sunday after the Epiphany. Six-winged serpents with eerie voices, trembling thresholds and smoke-filled rooms, a robe so vast its hem overflows a temple. Is this scripture? or a scene from a sci-fi movie. The story of Isaiah's prophetic call is one of the most cinematic stories in the Bible, and at first glance it might seem inaccessible. After all, most of us don't see flying seraphs when we pray, or receive absolution via tongs and live coals. In fact, I suspect some of us read theophany stories in Scripture, stories of divine manifestation, and walk away feeling wary, wistful, or envious. Why don't we get to see and hear God in such concrete ways? In what sense are biblical theophanies true? What role should mystical experience play in our 21st century lives? If God were to appear to us in such dramatic fashion, would we respond with gratitude or fear for our mental health? I don't have black and white answers to these questions, but I do think that Isaiah's vision is worth wrestling with anyway. As I've spent time with the reading this week, here is some of what I have noticed appreciated, and pondered. Do I really believe in a God of the encounter? In the year that King Uzziah died, writes Isaiah, I saw the Lord. Isaiah's experience of God is grounded in the particulars of his context and history. At a particular instant, in a specific moment of cultural, political, and social upheaval in Isaiah's life, he encounters God. A king, one of the overall better ones in Judah's history, has died in disgrace, leaving Isaiah reeling. What will happen now? How will God's people fare going forward? Where should they look for hope, guidance, and help as the sociopolitical horizon grows dim? In other words, Isaiah experiences God's presence in a time of absence. He encounters the divine when there's nothing else to lean on, nowhere else to go. God enters the gap fills the void and speaks into the silence human frailty leaves behind. As we look at our own contexts, personal, cultural, political, global, I wonder if we can say what Isaiah says. In the year that my father died. In the year that my church closed its doors. In a season when my national leaders disappointed me. In those years when COVID broke our hearts. As we watch the climate crisis worsen. Inside the void of my sin, sorrow, and brokenness. In a time of crisis, hysteria, absurdity, and chaos, I saw the Lord. In my own faith life, I worry that I don't lean hard enough into the possibility of encounter. Sure, I believe in a God who wants me to love, serve, hope, and do justice. But I don't always believe in a God who desires to meet me. A God who might actually show up if I dare to live mystically. That is, if I dare to prioritize those practices, silence, contemplation, prayer, and meditation, that open my heart to real engagement with the divine. Maybe I hesitate because I fear disappointment. Or maybe I just plain don't make the time because I'm busy. Either way, Isaiah's story invites me to reconsider. It invites me to ask, seek, trust, and anticipate. No, we might not see wings, thrones, or tongs when God appears, But the witness of both scripture and history is consistent in promising us that our God is a God of the encounter. God appears, God speaks, God reveals, and God hears. 
Our task is not so much to yearn for the cinematic and the spectacular, though I wouldn't rule anything out when it comes to God, but to look for the sacred in the specific details of our lives. Not just in the pretty details, but in the messy ones. Sometimes it's when King Uzziah dies, when our strongholds fail, our foundations tremble and our resources dry up, that we see the Lord. Do I recognize that worship is dangerous? In her provocative book, Teaching a Stone to Talk, Expeditions and Encounters, Annie Dillard asks a spot-on question about the expectations we bring to worship. Quote, Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake some day and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. Isaiah enters the temple to worship, and the cosmos splits wide open. A human house of brick, wood, mortar, and stone becomes a throne room, high and lofty. The thin space of the ordinary expands until the presence of God, the mere hem of God's clothing, fills every corner, every nook. Isaiah experiences the transcendence of God so powerfully he cries out, not in cozy comfort, but in awe, fear, and even despair, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. As Christians, we rightly hold God's otherness and God's closeness, God's transcendence and God's imminence, to use more churchy words, intention, trying our best to honor both. But I sometimes wonder if I lean so hard into God as consoler, counselor, and friend that I forget God's vast and mysterious otherness. The God Isaiah sees is not safe. The motions Isaiah experiences aren't comfortable. The forgiveness Isaiah receives is not painless. Would we take worship, prayer, and confession more seriously if we trusted the raw and brutal power of Isaiah's vision? How would I respond if a seraph brought a live coal to my lips? Do I really want my sinfulness cauterized? Am I as open to costly transformation as Isaiah is in this story? How carelessly or reverently do I walk into church and sing holy, holy, holy on Sunday mornings? Would I walk the planet differently if I really believed the seraph's declaration that the whole earth is full of God's glory? To say that worship is dangerous is not to say that it's harmful. On the contrary, what's remarkable about Isaiah's vision is the tension it so beautifully illustrates. The same God whose robe fills a temple, the same God the seraphs can't bear to gaze upon, condescends to Isaiah, forgives Isaiah, and invites Isaiah to participate in sacred, world-changing work. It's because Isaiah stands in right relationship to God's transcendence that he learns to savor God's closeness. It's because he recognizes his vast unworthiness that the hot coal of grace comes as gift, not as torture. Do I know how to measure success? To put it bluntly, Isaiah's vision doesn't end on a high note. He doesn't walk away celebrating. In fact, I imagine he walks away startled, pensive, and bewildered, not knowing what to make of the thankless vocation God gives him. After Isaiah receives absolution, he hears God's urgent call, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Freshly forgiven and zealous to serve, Isaiah responds with enthusiasm, Here am I, send me. The poor guy. 
I can almost see him dancing on tiptoe, all dignity forgotten, his hands waving frantically in the air. Me, me, oh, please, God, choose me. Well, God chooses him all right. God chooses him to preach to people who will not listen. God asks him to speak in ways that make the mind of the people dull and stop their ears and shut their eyes. God commissions the prophet to prophesy until cities lie waste, emptiness fills the land, and the Lord sends everyone far away. If you're not flinching, you should be, because this is not the kind of ministry any of us would choose. This is truth-telling so pointed, so radical, so raw, and so consequential, it defies every measure of success our culture knows and respects. This is discerning work, incisive work, the work of judgment in its best sense, judgment as perception, as vision, as clarity. How many of us are brave enough for this work? How many of us trust that God might still be faithful, active, and engaged in our lives if the people we serve walk away? The promise that ends Isaiah's vision isn't the promise of a packed-out megachurch. It's not a promise of prosperity or popularity. It's not the promise of immediate or even tangible reward. It's the promise of a stump, a remnant, a holy seed. It's the promise of not much, but exactly enough. There's a price to pay when we say yes to God. There's a recalibration of success we have to make when we accept the divine call and say, Send me. What matters after that yes is strange and countercultural. What matters is integrity, truthfulness, long-suffering, patience. What matters is believing wholeheartedly in the divine economy of stumps and seeds, because this is how God works. This is how God determines success. Out of the tiny, the hidden, and the barely discernible, God's life springs. The wasteland becomes a garden. The stump becomes a mighty tree, God takes the palette of dread and desolation and turns it riotous with color. It might not happen soon. We might not see it in our lifetimes. But the vision remains, and its promise sustains, enlivens, and fills us. Isaiah sees the Lord, and everything changes in the wake of that seeing. The changes aren't easy, safe, or uniformly comforting. But they are good. May our seeing and our changing be for good, too. For books this week, Dan reviews Catherine May's Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. I got this book from our local library based upon its deliciously countercultural title. In a world that is addicted to work, says Catherine May, we have forgotten how to rest. In a culture that makes us feel like failures if we're not world beaters, we ignore the unpleasant reality that life is difficult for everyone. May's hard times have included family sickness, job loss, a son who stopped attending school, and her own diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome. The onset of winter, as a literal season and as a metaphor for life, can remind us of our fallow times, of cold and darkness, and that those downtimes can be a transformative season of rest and retreat. For May, a secular mystic, this includes contemplating the poetry of John Donne and Sylvia Plath, and the winter themes in the Chronicles of Narnia, hunkering down at home to cook and bake, experiencing the thermal spas of Iceland and the polar lights of Norway when the sun never rises, winter swimming in the icy sea, joining the druid myths surrounding her native Stonehenge, and in general paying attention to all the liminal spaces that winter offers if we embrace it rather than push it away. And so she uses winter as a verb, and says that since we can't avoid it, we should embrace it, that we consider the Danish idea of haiga, 
a sense of comfort, togetherness, and well-being without feeling guilty for doing so, even while we acknowledge that all of our lives remain imperfect and unfinished. I think of it as some form of non-narcissistic self-care that isn't just a privilege of the rich. May's book reminded me of a winter family vacation in northern Finland long ago, and of a line of poetry from Percy Shelley's Ode to the West Wind. O wind, if winter comes, can spring be far behind. For films this week, Dan reviews Lives Well Lived, 2018. When the filmmaker Sky Bergman's grandmother approached the age of 100, she decided to explore the incredible wit and wisdom of people aged 75 to 100. And so she interviewed 40 very diverse people who had a collective 3,000 years of lived experiences to discover what makes for a life well lived. What struck me most about almost all of the subjects were the horrible pains they had suffered, fleeing Hitler's Europe, the Japanese internment camps here in America, the war death of a husband, marriages cut short by illness, poverty during the Depression, etc. But through it all, they persevered. Quote, never let yourself become a victim, said one person. Their stories also reminded me of David Brooks' distinction between seeking resume virtues versus eulogy virtues. In a nice touch, Bergman gives the first and then the last cameos to her grandmother at her 103rd birthday party. For more on this inspiring topic, see Clayton Christensen, James Alworth, and Karen Dillon. How Will You Measure Your Life? 2012. Michael Kinsley, Old Age, A Beginner's Guide? 2016. Wendy Lusbader, Life Gets Better, The Unexpected Pleasures of Growing Older, 2011. Carl Pillemer, 30 Lessons for Living, Tried and True Advice from the Wisest Americans, 2011. Jennifer, Jonathan Rauch, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50, 2018. Tal Ben-Shahar, Shortcuts to Happiness, Life-Changing Lessons from My Barber, 2018. And the movie Happy, 2011. I watch this film from the PBS website where it aired in September of 2021. And lastly, for poetry, on this fifth Sunday after the Epiphany, Maya Angelou's Touched by an Angel. We, unaccustomed to courage, exiles from delight, live coiled in shells of loneliness, until love leaves its high holy temple and comes into our sight to liberate us into life. Love arrives, and in its train come ecstasies, old memories of pleasure, ancient histories of pain. Yet if we are bold, life strikes away the chains of fear from our souls. We are weaned from our timidity in the flesh of love's light, and we dare be brave. And suddenly we see that love costs all we are and will ever be. Yet it is only love which sets us free. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for February 6th, 2022. I'm Debbie Thomas.